So uh, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. One of the Christmas traditions we've got in this country, it seems like, every year is blockbuster movies, right? This is the time when theaters, other than the summer, put out their big shot pictures. And they expect that, that because people have all this time on their hands and they don't have anything to do with their kids because their kids are out of school, they're going to flock to the movies. And, and one of the movies that I'm interested to see that came out last week is the third movie in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Anybody seen it yet? Show of hands? Yes, lots of people. Seen the Chronicles of Narnia third movie. Uh, I'm interested to see it because those books had a big impact on me as a kid. Uh, partly just because they were so entertaining. The worlds that, that Lewis created in those books were so vivid and, and so powerful. But also because Lewis, probably more than anyone else, has shown me how stories can sometimes be the best way to make a good point. That sometimes you can explain something in a story that wouldn't ring as true if you were just to come out and say it in, in a simple sentence. Lewis unlocked for me the power of stories as a device to communicate truth. That's certainly why he told stories. His stories always had a point, and that's why he loved stories. Lewis loved the old ancient myths of the Greeks and the Romans, for instance, the ones that all of us got subjected to in high school and college. Those were his favorites. He loved them. He knew that they were stories that tried to communicate something about the way the world worked. They would communicate values. Uh, they, would, they would communicate how a people, the Greeks or the Romans, understood themselves in the world. That's why Lewis loved them, as these attempts to explain reality. And that's also why Lewis loved the Bible. And one of the things that I'm most indebted to him for, in addition to a lot of great reading as a kid, is that he showed me just how much the Bible is one single story. That all of its little details, even the nitty-gritty details in the law books that none of us really enjoy reading, they're all there ultimately to contribute to one bigger picture, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Lewis fundamentally believed that the Bible served the same kind of function as those myths of the Greeks and the Romans, a story that explained the world, that had the special distinction of also being true, things that actually did happen. The Bible has all the story elements that Lewis loved. From the beginning to the end, it's a story that stretches from the creation of the world to the new heavens and the new earth, a story about evil in the world and evil in us, and about God's holy combat against that evil. It's a story about the defeat of evil and his rescue of his beloved creatures at the cost of his own son and on behalf of the very creatures that had done him the wrong in the first place. It's a story that confounds expectations in the way that all great stories do. God has chosen in his wisdom to work out his project to save people in history. Rather than doing it all at once, he's chosen to do it over time and in pieces. Because he's chosen to work salvation out that way, it's important for us to understand the whole story. The story of what's called salvation history. The history of God's work of redemption. The reason it's so important for us to understand that whole work is that God didn't do it at once like a play with only one act, but has several acts. And to understand one, you need to understand the others. It's just like a really good movie or good storytelling technique isn't just going to jump in with their characters already fully developed and expect you to, to, to sympathize with them and to, to feel along with them as they, as they go through the steps in their story. If you watch a war movie, for instance... You know, people are probably getting killed early on in these in the early battle scenes, but chances are 
you're not really that affected by it. Unless it's like really gruesome violence and it turns your stomach, you're not really sorry for those people. But if you're following one character as he survives these battles and makes it all the way to the end, maybe he's got a friend and, and at the, in the climactic scene he's giving his life for his friend or for some cause that you've come to sympathize with. If you're, if you're watching Braveheart or something and William Wallace comes to die at the end, well, you feel differently about it because you know about these earlier acts that have prepared you for the significance of that final death, right? In a way that an early death and an early battle scene just doesn't resonate. The reason I'm going on about stories like this is that it's Christmas time. This is the time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but Christmas, the birth of Jesus only makes full sense. We're only really to, able to appreciate why it matters so much that Jesus is born if we see that it's not act one in the play. It comes as a moment of climax to a beautiful story, a messy story that's been developing for thousands of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. The goal for today, in other words, is that we'd be able to go out this next week and to think about and read about and pray over and sing about Christmas with a full knowledge of why it matters so much, of what it is that Jesus' birth means for what had come before and what's, for going, what's going to come after. The best pla- one of the best places to see this picture is in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is one of the prophecies of Jesus' birth given centuries, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene. It's one of the prophecies given in the midst of, of one of God's chosen people's greatest moments of suffering. A moment of not just suffering at the hands of others, but of judgment at the hands of the God who had called them out to serve as a separate and, and, and distinct people. It's in the context of this suffering, this judgment for Israel who had repeatedly rebelled against God. It's in the context of that suffering and judgment that God promises his judgment won't last forever. That his earlier promises to Abraham would win out in the end. And that they'd win out because of a child who would be born. To understand Isaiah chapter 9, ultimately to understand the meaning of Christmas, we've got to understand the three major pieces to this prophecy. We have to understand darkness, the category of darkness. We have to understand light, what the prophet means by light. And only then will we be able to understand the significance of the child. We're going to take these one at a time. We need to understand darkness as it's introduced to us in this prophecy. We need to understand light. And then only then Will we understand the significance of the child? Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And uh, would you mind standing with me when you found that in honor of God's word? Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought it into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as when they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of my favorite images in the Bible favorite images for God himself, for what God requires of us, for the significance of Jesus coming is the image of light. And one of the most significant uses of the light versus darkness imagery is in this passage from Isaiah. The prophet uses this powerful, unmistakable image of darkness to capture the state of the world and this people when God's promises meet them. The text here doesn't get into detail about what that darkness looked like in practice. This text is more about light. What it leaves you to do for yourself is to take what's come before in the story and understand from what's come before why they can be described as walking in darkness. This text assumes that you know about the history of Israel. It's a history that is full of darkness. There's lots of examples that we could come up with to try to get at what it means to walk in darkness really starts as soon as God's made the world. He's got, he's, he's got this perfect and beautiful world that he's made in a place where everything is provided for his people to be happy and to enjoy him forever, a place in which there's no, there's no war, there's only harmony in between the, the humans and their relationships, there's harmony with the rest of the created world, and it's in that context that somehow, mysteriously, human selfishness is born. From that act of trying to be like God, taking that which God had prohibited with an attempt to be like Him. From that self-asserting, self-centered act comes a fundamental brokenness that touches all the things that God has made. We get our first example of what this darkness looks like in practice with Cain and Abel. As soon as they leave the garden and God has told them what life is going to be like, and as soon as God has introduced the category of, of death as something that will be part of all of their experiences, we see it in practice. We see what jealousy and rage look like as one brother sees another brother taking, taking some, some credit that he wishes he had for himself, some reputation, some renown that he wanted. He sees someone else having and he acts out in violence for the first time. We see the darkness in Cain's decision to kill We see the darkness in Abel's experience of death. Even it's not something he had done wrong. He is experiencing a world of darkness. From here we get many more examples, both in Genesis. It gets so bad at one point that God decides to to destroy almost everything that he'd made with the flood. We've seen it in in the, the, the people of Israel having to suffer hundreds of years of captivity in Egypt. 
We see little windows of light breaking in when God rescues them from there and gives them a law that's going to set them apart from the rest of the people. He, He promises He's going to make them a blessing to others. But every time those beams of light shine into their experience, they respond not with obedience, but with more disobedience, with more rebellion against God. You want to look for darkness, think no further than the book of Judges, which has deliverance after deliverance of God, but followed always with more sin, so that this story ends with that summary statement that everybody does what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. Getting a king wasn't the solution. God answered their call for a king with, with, with kings. But the first one out of the gate ends up turning to idols. Yes, we get David and more promises, more beams of light that even David's own son Solomon, one of the best kings imaginable, turns to idols at the end of his days. And, and what comes after him is, is only a, a, a severe downhill slide from there. Leading up to where Isaiah is prophesying has been a history of the people of Israel. And once they're split off, the people of Israel and the people of Judah led into sin by their own leaders, the ones God had given them to point them to him and to faithfulness to his promises. It's a darkness that looks like personal rebellion and a darkness that looks like a world that is fundamentally broken and full of violence and slavery and oppression. That's the story up to this point. Yes, there are promises God has made that are carrying it along. Yes, he has been faithful, but he has been faithful only in spite of repeated failures to obey him. It's a history of of darkness. Ultimately, though, we don't have to go to the biblical story to understand what it looks like to live in a world that's, that's ultimately colored by darkness. Darkness is a sweeping category that that includes both personal sin against God and living in a world that's affected by personal sin. Darkness is a great way to describe what it takes for a person to knowingly kill someone else, to commit an act of murder or sexual assault. That's, That's a kind of darkness that has to come over the mind and a heart. But darkness doesn't stop there. Darkness is also a great way to talk about the veil that has to come over you before you'll lash out at your spouse or your children. Darkness is a great way to describe that callousness that allows you to say hurtful things about somebody else behind their back. Darkness is a great way to describe the unstoppable self-centeredness that can make you wish bad things on other people, even if you never say anything about it, because you think it might make you look better. That's the kind of self-centered darkness that colors all of our vision. Darkness is also a good description of the world that we live in. It's deeply broken. We're all subject to the consequences of sins that we don't even commit for ourselves. Then, when Isaiah was writing, and now, there's hunger, there's fear, there's depression, there's slavery and oppression, there's war, there are widows and orphans and homeless, and ultimately, for all of us, there's death. This is a world of darkness. This is what it means for the people to walk in darkness. Israel's history to that point and our history, the history of every people that's ever walked the earth, is a history full of darkness suffered, darkness contributed to. The darkness that Isaiah refers to is a world that's broken and full of evil and full of suffering and full of rebellion against God. It's to people in that condition, to people who are even then walking in darkness and probably more often than not happy about it, It's to people in that condition, where they were, that the light of God's grace shines on them. We've understood the darkness. I think 
next we have to understand the burden of this passage. Most of it is about light, which dramatically, counterintuitively, shines on people who were willingly walking in in darkness. Look at verse 2, where this gets introduced. The people who walked in darkness, the darkness we've just described, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. This image of light is just as clear, just as compelling as the image of darkness, I think, to describe what Isaiah is trying to get at. It's actually an image that gets used of of God repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, think of 1 John talking about how God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The image of light is something that evokes holiness, a a purity, a a, a, a revelation, an insight of coming to the mind, a light that is shed in the mind. It's, It's an image for conversion, a light shed abroad in our hearts to change the way that we view everything. Ultimately, the light, whatever we want to whatever specifics we want to add to it, is a solution to the darkness. To everything we just described, the light is the answer. It is something darkness cannot overpower. Just like no matter how deep a cave may go, you light one little candle inside there and there is no way all of that darkness can do anything about it. The candle is going to burn. The light is not overpowered. What this light looks like in the subject is, is the subject of what's coming, the next several verses. It, it, it meets the people where their need is greatest. It addresses them where they fear most. In a sense, I think what this light represents, as we're going to see in these details, is a restoration of all that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. What was lost from the garden? Remember what, what the garden was representing? A place of absolute security. You didn't have to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. You had everything you could possibly need there. There's fruit all over the place. You've got perfect harmony. There's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's no division between people. There's no division between people and and a hostile environment around them. There's no fear about what circumstances might do to you or about what other people might do to you. It's a place of security and rest that's ultimately made secure because God is there. Get those images of God actually walking in the garden. With Adam and Eve, mysteriously, somehow, they had this personal connection to him. And that connection, that rejoicing, the joy they had before God was ultimately what secured the joy in all these other realms. It's a place of perfection. So with sin, with removal from the garden, what changed? Food's no longer easy. Now you've got to worry about where you're going to get supplies for your family. Relationships are now broken Violence is now a, part, a regular part of human experience. You've also got internal sins that produce the violence. Angst about your standing and your value, comparing to others that was nowhere present before sin. You've got oppression that's obvious from Israel's experience in Egypt. These things beginning with that broken relationship with God and trickling down through all these other ways that we lack security. These these things represent the basic fears that all of us humans experience. How are we going to provide? What are we going to do to keep others from harming us? Fear about circumstances, fear about people. That's where this prophecy speaks light into darkness. Where people had helplessly wandered about in their darkness, God restores the peace and the joy that they had broken. That's ultimately the promise throughout the rest of this text, beginning in verse 3. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, the prophet says, to God. 
you have increased its joy. Why? What kind of joy? Well, they rejoice before you in your presence, the presence that Adam and Eve once enjoyed and that now in Christ we know we have, unbreakable, that we can go into God's presence. That's what secures the joy. It's joy like at harvest. Harvest is the time when you've got your food in. You no longer have to worry about whether about whether the, the weather is going to be bad and maybe affect your, your ability to reap this harvest. You no longer have to worry about bugs. You no longer have to worry about getting trampled by some sort of marauding army. Your harvest is in. It's in the storehouse, and you are good for one more year. That's the kind of joy, the kind of deep breath that this light feels like, a security in the presence of God. It's a joy like when you divide the spoil, the next line. It's an image of victory. When you divide the spoil, it's... You are not being divided as spoil. This only makes sense in light of the earlier prophecies in Isaiah. That's that's one of the things that Isaiah had told them was coming for them, that they were going to be spoiled for the nations because of their disobedience. And that, that does happen. Soon after this prophecy was given, they are judged for their sin. The promise is that eventually a light of God's grace is shining into that darkness and no longer will they be Will they be the spoils of war? They will divide the spoil. They will enjoy complete victory. You can see how it's a promise that you won't have to fear your circumstances. You won't have to fear other people and what they might do to you. It's complete security that begins with rejoicing before God. Verse 4, nor will you have to fear oppression. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor is broken. God breaks all oppression just like he did at Midian. It's a reference to Gideon, the Gideon story, where Gideon takes a very small number of people against these, these forces that had come to attack God's people, and he destroys them. Obviously, just like in this verse where, every, where, where the subject of every verb is God doing this, God accomplishing this redemption, that, that's what the Gideon story was all about. No, you're not going to take that number of people because then you might think that your army delivered you. You're going to take this small, barely, barely even, even called a band of people. And, and with that group, you are going to, to accomplish this great victory and you'll know that it was me who gave it to you. That's, that's the point. That's the images that the prophet is recalling from their past history. The joy, the light that's going to shine, it's a light that God accomplishes just like he did at Midian. And it's going to mean restoration of joy as at the harvest. It's going to mean dividing the spoil. It's going to mean breaking the yoke of the oppressor. And he is in its place. He will put on his yoke on you. And it will be light. And it will be easy because he's going to bear it for you. That's the promise of Isaiah chapter 9. That's what the light looks like. The final image of light, verse 5, is maybe the most dramatic. It's a promise that God's going to put an end to all war. Verse 5 says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood is going to be burned as fuel for the fire. The first few times I read through that, it didn't make much sense to me because these images just aren't part of our normal experience. What it is, though, what it refers to is, is what it looks like for war to happen. Garments covered in blood, boots on the, on the feet of these, of these warriors as they go into battle. All of that is going to be burned in a big bonfire because there's no use for it anymore. In other words, war is over. Again, it's, it's, war is not a direct experience that many of us will ever have. But we should realize how basic an experience it has been for most people who have ever lived. Thousands of years ago, I mean, it didn't look like the World War II movies, but it was tribes fighting with each other routinely as a way of life. 
I mean, the people of Israel, you can look at their history and know how often they were engaged in battle with their enemies. And, and even in our own life, even now, we're at war. And people that we know are there and they're fighting in, in conditions that are too horrific to capture in words. It's fundamental part of what human experience has looked like, what the darkness has looked like, is a war that just seems stupid if you boil it all down and yet is an unavoidable part of our experience. That's going away. That's what it looks like for the, shine, for the light to shine into the darkness. The promises that define light shining in darkness couldn't hardly be any more all-encompassing. It's about an absolute restoration of joy and peace. It begins with a restoration of our relationship with God. They rejoice, remember, before you in a way that wasn't possible because of their sin beforehand. And it trickles down to overthrow all those things that wreck our security and cause us to fear. Now, here's the question. Here's the question that this raises. We all get what darkness means. Hopefully, by now, you get what this light is going to look like what it's going to look like for God to make all things new. The question that it raises is how? Who is going to bring this light into our experience? Who will restore God's presence? Who's going to shatter the yoke of oppression? Who's going to put an end to war? Israel's had many deliverers in the past. They've had some big shots, some rock star heroes in the past. They've had people like Moses and Joshua. They've got their Gideons even their Davids, but none so far have proven able to crush the power of evil. That's what they've been waiting on ever since the beginning. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, God promises that there's someone coming, the seed of the woman, a human being is coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent, and with that, all evil, the power of evil in the world, they've been waiting for that. It wasn't Abraham, he died just like everyone else. It wasn't even David who died receiving promises, but promises that were unfulfilled. Who's it going to be? That's the question raised by the prophecy at this point. Surely, we're left to think this ultimate deliverer would be more magnificent and more impressive than all of these past leaders. And he is. But it's not at all how you'd expect. If you understand the, the darkness and you understand the light, you're finally ready to understand the significance of the child. That's what's introduced in verse 6. Verse 6 introduces the ground for all the promises of the previous verses. We know that this light, this great, incredible joy is coming for, that's the first word in verse 6, it triggers the reason for all the things that have come before. The darkness now has light shining into it because a child is going to be born. A son is given to you. One of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian story, one of those twists, one of those unexpected twists that make it such a great story, is that the final deliverer comes not in the form of some Goliath-like giant leading a massive army, but it comes in the form of a child that's born into poverty. That's the one who's going to shatter the yoke of oppression, who's going to put an end to death once and for all. That's the light shining into the darkness. Oppressors aren't overthrown by new and larger oppressors. It's not like when Hitler gets overthrown by Stalin, who one-ups him in his, in his reign of oppression and terror, but by a power that is new and of a completely different sort. It's a power to liberate, a power to, to give joy, not take it, a power to compel obedience through love, not through the rod. That's the significance of Jesus' birth. He's the light 
that shines in the darkness. That's what John's gospel says right out of the gate in chapter 1. That he is the, he is the light shining in the darkness that the darkness could not overpower. And as these next two verses, verse 6 and 7, explain, he's going to have exactly the qualities that are needed to do all the things that are promised in the earlier verses. He is the perfectly designed king to make all of this stuff happen. Look at verse 6. What's he going to be like? This is a child, of course. A son is given to us. He's going to have the government on his shoulder. That's what's got to happen if we're going to have this realm of security and peace. Is, is, is a, we, need, we need someone to impose that order as a governor over it. This is going to be the one. And here's what he's going to be like. His name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to have wisdom, in other words, that's unmatched, that's always worth submitting to. It's, it's a wisdom that's even greater than the wisdom of Solomon, who... Wise though he was as Israel's most wise king, even he turned against God in the end and served the idols of his wives. He, this child will be a wonderful counselor that's even wiser than Solomon. He's going to be a mighty God, not just another human leader, not just another David, not just another Abraham who's subject to the sins that afflict all of us. He's going to be God himself. He's going to be utterly holy and he's going to be completely powerful so that he can accomplish all the things that his holiness sets out for him to do. He is going to be a wonderful counselor who is also a mighty God, able to accomplish the things that his wisdom says are best to accomplish. He's going to be an everlasting father. This is not not to get too picky about the titles within the Trinity. We're not here talking about the father versus the son or the spirit. We're talking about what, his, what it looks like for this child king to reign. And what it'll look like is not rod of an oppressor or, or some sort of slave driver with a whip, it's going to look like a loving father who is self-sacrificing, who, who leads through service rather than serving himself. He's going to be the everlasting father, and he'll be the prince of peace. He's going to make peace not just among humankind, but by, by bringing a far more important peace with a holy God who can't look on sin. He is going to heal the divide that has, that has broken this world ever since the fall. That's who this king will be. The prophet moves from verse 6 to verse 7 from the qualities of the king to the qualities of his kingdom. Okay, here's what the king is going to be like. He's going to be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. He's going to be an everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of peace. And here's what it's going to look like to live in his kingdom. Ultimately, the thing that sticks out most to me in verse 7 is this concept of increase. It says, of the increase of his kingdom and of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I think the best way that... The best way that I can understand what it would be like for, for a kingdom and, and the enjoyment of it to, to increase over and over so that, so that it, it keeps on going forever and ever, moving somehow from perfection to perfection. The best, the best analogy from my experience has been when I got my iPhone. I know you're going to think that that's crazy because, I mean, obviously it's nothing like, you know, the, the, the eternal kingdom of Jesus. But it was one of the, you know, normally you get your Christmas presents or something like that, and, and they're great for a little while, but eventually the luster is gone, and it just leaves you wanting more. They're, they're, most pleasures that we enjoy are fleeting, and they seem so great until we've got them, and then it's like they disappear. The allure of them disappears. The iPhone, though, is like holding the future in your hands, right? And, and it keeps getting better. You keep discovering more and more capabilities. It's like each new day brings a new app that 
that makes this device something you never imagined it could be before, something that wasn't even part of your categories for thinking about what this thing could be. The iPhone is one of the few, this is not a commercial for an iPhone, but it's one of the, it's one of the few times I've ever gotten an object that seems to have gotten better over time rather than have left me bored over time. C.S. Lewis has a much better analogy, the end of the, of the last battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, when they're, they're approaching what, what pictures for Lewis the end of that cataclysmic contest with evil, where evil is eradicated forever. He describes what's coming as the greatest story ever told that no human on earth has ever read, where every chapter is better than the one before. And, you keep, and, and the chapters ultimately never stop coming. That's the increase of his government that's described here. That's the, the peace, the kingdom of peace that this child king has come to bring. The increase of his government, there's never going to be any end. He's going to reign on the throne of David over his kingdom. He's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. He's going to be a contrast to all the self-serving kings that have ever been part of your experience from this time forth and forevermore. Ultimately, it's an image of the enjoyment of God, of a rejoicing before Him that never stops and that never gets old. That's what it looks like for light to shine into darkness. And the only way that light shines into darkness, the only way that this happens, is a child being born. That's the image of salvation brought by Jesus. It's as absolute as creation itself. That's why I love one of my favorite lines from Joy to the World, from the Isaac Watts Christmas Carol, Joy to the World. One of my favorite lines is, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, this child king, the light shining into darkness. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Just as far as the darkness goes, that's how far this light is going. It is a search and destroy mission that will not be thwarted. It's as secure as the sovereignty of the one who's bringing it about. I love the way verse 7 ends. All of this building to the end of verse 7. The darkness is conquered by a light that comes in and brings a restoration of all that had been lost and it's a child who's going to do it. And the reason you can, you can stake your life on this is that it's not up to whether or not we're faithful enough to warrant this kind of favor or grace. What makes it secure what makes it grounds for us to rejoice before the Lord is that the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do it. God's going to do it. He's the subject of all the verbs that matter. It doesn't rest on the faithfulness even of Israel's best leaders. Their best leaders had proven failures to obey the law. It's going to happen in spite of human disobedience because God is going to accomplish it. That's what I want us to think about this week when we consider the birth of Jesus. He, he comes at the climax of a long story that's full of sin and pain and conflict. And there has never been a time in which the darkness that is experienced even in your own life has, has not been a part of human experience ever since the fall. It's, it's been there. There's fundamental brokenness. And he comes to bring a light that the darkness can't overpower. And he comes to restore all things that were broken, to restore peace with God and peace among men. I want you to think about that this week, especially if your experience doesn't seem to match up with these promises. What I want you to think about is the fact that 
And these promises came to Israel right before the largest moment of darkness in their history. These came right before they were sent into exile as a just punishment for their disobedience. With exile came the scattering of their people. One of the fundamental promises of God is that He was going to make them a people. Now they're scattered. And the loss of their land. One of His fundamental promises is He was going to restore land as a place of security, a place for them to to relate to Him in peace and harmony, just like the garden. They're losing both of those things. They're losing everything that made them significant as a people. This promise speaks into the darkness as a promise that the darkness won't last forever. I want you to remember that Jesus came as the light that shines into the darkness, but also as one who ultimately came to die. That Jesus, the child king born, whose whose birth we're, we're celebrating this week, didn't just get born and ride on from victory to victory, but he was crowned as a result of his suffering. So if suffering is a fundamental part of your experience now, take hope from these promises because these are promises that it's not ultimate and it won't last forever. There's promises that it's whatever may be happening to you now is happening to you just like the cross happened to Jesus as a means to an end, as a good to come out of the evil that's designed for you by your Heavenly Father who loves you and who's token of love for you, his his, his chief token of love for you is the fact that his son was born and lived and died. Ultimately, we should celebrate Christmas knowing that light has shined into the darkness just as surely as God was true to his promises to Israel throughout their history. That there is a long story, a long track record of a God who makes good on his word. And even though we don't see now The fulfillment of what's promised in Isaiah chapter 9, we have a long history of God being true. And we can claim it in faith this week, even now. Because he is the one who is able to pull it off. I want you to celebrate knowing that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Will you pray with me? Help us, Lord. Help us to overcome the darkness that colors even our minds as we read this text that distracts us from its truth and its beauty, that makes us doubt whether or not you can do what you've said you would, that makes us doubt even whether you've spoken at all. Would you dispel that darkness for us with light? Would you give give sight to our eyes? Would you give us the grace this week to reflect on on the birth of your Son with joy, that is unbroken by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But you give us the ability to see his birth for what it is as a climactic act, a climactic fulfillment of promises made hundreds of years earlier and a token of the fact that you will be true to the promises you've made here in Isaiah 9. Would you help us to celebrate as those who look forward to the light and its ultimate final overthrow of the darkness? We know that that is supernatural. We know that on our own we are not going to be able to, to see as we ought to see. And so we, we ask that you would give us grace. We ask that your light would shine into our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.